morning, church. It is a privilege to welcome you. I would like to invite you, as we usually do, open your Bibles, and this week to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we will be finishing a series today on the Ten Commandments. As you're opening to that passage, a couple things I just want to highlight. Uh, in two weeks, as you heard Bree share, we're going to be having a baptism service. And these are literally one of our favorite kinds of services here. And here's why. Because we get to hear firsthand from people who've committed their life to Christ and they're going in obedience under the waters of baptism and then being raised. And we love the firsthand stories. Uh, if you've never been to one of our baptism services, I would highly encourage you. If you still uh, have not been baptized and you know Christ, the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized Christian, I want to encourage you in the next two weeks, just get a hold of us, one of our pastors, and we will get you in the queue. We just, uh, just need to know a little bit ahead of time. But we are looking forward to a very good service on that day. And I will actually be preaching on baptism and the call to baptism, just so that we're all clarified. I was baptized when I was 16 years old after professing Christ, and it is truly the first step of obedience in the Christian life. The other thing I wanted to highlight is just say a huge thank you to all those who've been involved with our playground. And uh, if you would thank them with me, it's been a huge, huge blessing. been an exciting thing to watch go up. It is the only playground within quite a radius around here. And a reminder that things like playgrounds and parking lots and buildings, all that, they're tools. That's all they are. They're tools for gospeling. They're tools for helping reach a community with the gospel. And this is just the, our latest tool that the Lord has allowed us to do with a pavilion, which people are already starting to reserve. <laughs> so, it's, uh, I think God's going to use us in a lot of unique ways. Since COVID ended, it has just been an encouragement to see how many new families God's been bringing us. Our elders are in overload mode at the moment, trying to interview all the people for our annual business meeting who want to be members. We had 42 in our last membership class. And so we are trying to steward that. But it's been a joy to see all the new young families coming in. We're hoping that this thing uh, will be a very valuable tool, our playground and pavilion. And you can even be on the playground, and you know, and if you like being on a slide or something and you're not a kid. I, mean, I don't know what the age limit is, but hey. Uh, what is it, three? Zero. Great. There you go. So, but anyways, we're very excited about what's going on out there, and I just wanted to thank all of those who have been involved. Exodus chapter 20. If you have been with us, we are in a series, and we've been in a series on the Ten Commandments, one a week. And the subtitle for this series has been God's Pathway to Freedom. And here's how we have set it up throughout the weeks. It's no surprise we live in a day of great moral confusion. Young people, you know that. Adults, you know that. Kids, you even know that. There's a lot of moral confusion everywhere. And here's the danger of moral confusion. I mean, there's lots of dangers, but let me be very clear. As moral confusion accelerates in the culture and then keeps seeping into churches, moral confusion misleads people. Moral confusion damages people. Moral confusion ruins marriages. And moral confusion destroys lives. 
And it is in the midst of a moral revolution that is going on right now in Western culture especially. That the Ten Commandments offer us such a path for clarity, for freedom, and hope. And so the goal of this series has been to help us learn more about the Ten Commandments and God's law in general and the role of God's law for the New Testament believer, which doesn't get a lot of clarification today in much of evangelicalism throughout the West. You know, sometimes we look at this stuff and think, oh, that's Old Testament. I had a Hebrew professor who reminded us one year, he said, you know, if you start the typical Bible reading program, and you start in Genesis, you know, in, or Job in January, and you start reading, you know, three or four chapters a day, you generally don't hit the New Testament till sometime near October. And that two-thirds of our Bible is what we would typically call the Old Testament. That's not the best title for it. It's the Hebrew Bible. But in the Old Testament, Scriptures are so much. I love, I love the Old Testament. And there's so much there for the New Testament believer, especially understanding the law and understanding that God's law was designed for human flourishing and happiness. We're going to get into that in just a second. So this weekend, we come to the final commandment, refuse to covet, restrain the desire for more stuff. And we're going to dive in by looking at the what, the why, the how. But before we do that, because it's the last sermon in the series, I am going to step back for just a little bit and do a little bit of review on the law, especially in the life of the New Testament Christian, because I think that's an area where the contemporary church is weak, and we all need a refresher. So, a little bit of review. Here's, here, I'm going to start with a misnomer. A lot of people, we've said this all along, look at the Ten Commandments or somehow get it in their, their head that the Ten Commandments were designed somehow way back for God's plan for salvation. I've even heard people hearsay at times, when we've asked, you know, how do you, how, how do you get saved? What's the gospel? I've actually heard people say, well, I, I think you like be a good person, try to follow the Ten Commandments. Like, and, no, that's not, that's not how you get saved. That's not even what they're for. The Bible doesn't teach that. Why? Because far from being a means of salvation, the law in general, now when we talk about the law, let's be reminded very briefly, we're talking about starting in Exodus and going through Deuteronomy, those 600 and some commands that were given to God's people. He delivered them, and then he gave them his law. He didn't give them the law to save them. First he saved them, delivered them, then he gave his law. And then at the pinnacle of those, really, or what we might call the Ten Commandments. They're the essence of the moral law. And then Jesus even took two and said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself as the top two. So we know there's you know, a tier, but the Ten Commandments clearly are, are there. And here's the problem with saying, well, they were designed to save us. As we've said all along, the Ten Commandments hang around my neck like a death sentence. They hang around your neck like a death sentence, all of us. Why? Because they expose our rebellion, every one of us. Whether you're saved or not, I know not everyone here is a Christian, and not everyone here knows Christ. But whether you're saved or not, they hang around your neck like a death sentence. They hang around my neck like a death sentence. They reveal my rebellion. They reveal my wickedness. They're a mirror showing me my sin, and they announce God's judgment. Just a, I call a witness here from the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. Just listen to two verses about the law. Romans 3.20, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Did you hear that? No one 
can be made right with God. You can't be reconciled to God. You can't be forgiven by doing what the law commands. And then he says, why? The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And then Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of God's standard. And we've said now, okay, that raises a, a, a very logical question. Young people, you with me? Raises a very important question. And the question is this. If we can't be saved by the law, well, how can we be saved? And the answer is very clear. It's clear from Genesis to Revelation. We're saved by the gospel, a word that means good news. And you say, well, I've heard the word. What does it mean? Well, it's the gospel. It goes back to Genesis. This is the same gospel, ladies and gentlemen, young people. Same gospel that saved Abraham. Same gospel that saved Moses. Same gospel that saved Jeremiah. Same gospel that saved Isaiah or Jonah. It wasn't like plan A in the Old Testament, and that didn't work, so now we go to plan B. Same gospel, which is what? Repent of our sin and place our trust in Jesus Messiah. They didn't know him by name in the Old Testament, but they knew him coming Messiah, and so their faith, their faith was looking forward. Our faith looks back to Christ, to him now, reigning in heaven. But the point is, same plan. Saved by faith alone. That's how, that's how Abraham was saved, according to Genesis. And it's, Paul makes the argument in Romans 4. Romans 4 is an entire chapter arguing that Abraham was saved by faith alone, just like we're saved. That's a really important distinction to make. And so God didn't tell his people, okay, obey all these rules in the desert, and then maybe I'll deliver you from Egypt and I'll save you. That's not how it worked. God first saved his people. He delivered them. Then he gave his law. And if you don't leave with anything else today, that paradigm, that order, is so critical for the Christian life to understand. So important. The law can't save us. Only Christ can save us. The law was given to those who were already saved. That leads to one other question. Well, if the law can't save us, is there anything, some ask, many ask, if the law can't save us, well, what's good in the law then? Isn't that like the law, that Old Testament stuff? That's often how it's stated. It's kind of this pejorative tone. That was Old Testament. That was law. What, what good is in the law? Well, there's a lot of good in the law. And the answer is the law was given to those who were already saved. Why? To find freedom and joy. And that's why it still applies to the New Testament believer today. Now, there are some dietary laws and ceremonial laws that no longer apply, but they still are important. Why? Because they show us who we are, and even more than that, every one of them is rooted in one of God's attributes, and they point to who God is. So God's law still shows the New Testament Christian, those who are already saved, how to choose the wise path, how to choose the path that voids destruction. Christians as well as non-Christians make destructive choices and get in destructive ruts. And, and, and many of the things commanded or forbidden in the law are there for one word, protection, for our protection. And that's why King David had such a high view of the law. I want to turn to a passage we read one other time, Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. And as we read it, I want you to ask yourself a question. 
When's the last time you thought this way or spoke this way about God's law? When's the last time you thought this way? And I asked myself this question. Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible, verses 97. This is very important to look at. What's the text telling us here? Through 104. Look at how David speaks about the law. And if the law was only there as a long list of rules, why would David speak this way? And I believe David is showing us a pattern that the New Testament believer can easily repeat today, and we should have the same view. So listen to David. Psalm 119, 97 to 104. Oh, how I love your law. That's just a foreign concept to a lot of us. To say that. When's the last time you, you cried out to God in your prayer time? Oh God, thank you for your law. I mean, we don't generally view law in a positive way. Most of us, are, our default setting is what towards any law? M- good old English word, murmur. Murmuring. We don't like laws. We don't like people telling us what to do. We have a problem with cosmic authority. We have a problem with any authority. And we don't like law. But listen to David. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Now just keep thinking, how is David speaking of law? Your commands are always with me. They make me wiser than my enemies. I have more the insight than my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than, than the elders, speaking of those older in the community. For I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. I love verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, and therefore I hate every wrong path. Ladies and gentlemen, that is why New Testament Christians need to get back to the law. That is why we need our Old Testament. It's not just old. It's the Hebrew Scriptures, and it lays the entire foundation for the New Covenant. You want to know who the freest person in the world is? I'll tell you. It's the person who has truly been set free in Christ. Not everyone who says, oh yeah, I believe, is really saved. But if you truly have crossed over that line of saving faith, the freest person in the world, hear this, is the person who has been delivered from their sin and set free in Christ, free from the curses of the law, and free to be holy. Holiness is another one of those words today that just doesn't have a lot of positive connotations to it. 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Do you know why there's freedom in holiness? Because holy people are happy people. Do you know that? Do you, do you believe that? Holy people are happy people. And when we choose sin, when we choose uh, 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 the wrong path, it does not lead to holiness. It leads to bondage. And that is why God's law is so important. We've noted in our series that one of the oldest sayings in the ancient church that was used often was in Latin. 
I'm going to use it one other time here today because I love the phrase. Deus pro nobis. God for us. Who's the us? It's not just religious people. It's for his own. Those who know him and those he knows. He rescues his elect out of darkness. He adopts them. He places his spirit in them. He gives them his law. He, he, he puts them in union with Christ. And then that law helps Christians, true believers, avoid moral danger. It helps them make wise choices and avoid destructive choices and be truly free. You know what the great tragedy is? Young people, please hear this. One of the great tragedies, many people, not just young people, all of us, believe that real freedom means doing whatever you want, whenever you want. There is a word for that, and it ain't freedom. It's depression. It's depression, because that leads to misery and bondage. All right, I'm done with the introduction to my sermon. Now, I just wanted to do some review this morning uh, because we're ending a series and the, un- the place of the law in the life of the believer is so misunderstood today. I thought it was very important once again for all of us to go over and be just clear on why God's law is so beneficial. Exodus 20, 17, we come to the last, what are called the words in the Hebrew text. Deuteronomy 4.19, these are called the Ten Words. We call them the Ten Commandments. Let's read the last one. Number 10 today. Exodus 20.17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your Now, what's interesting about this particular commandment is that like the first, which is no other gods, and like the fifth, honor your father and mother, this one tends to target in on an inner attitude. Most of the Ten Commandments have to do with something exterior first. Jesus did show us that things like don't steal, don't murder, and all that, don't commit adultery, certainly have an internal component where we sin before we get to the actual external sin. But this one only mentions the internal attitude, coveting. And it's separated from the command on stealing. It shows us where stealing begins, but the sin begins with coveting. And so the 10th commandment focuses on an internal problem. What's that problem? Excessive desire. That's what coveting is. That's the essence of coveting. Now, I, want, I need to do something here because the Bible is very clear about something that a lot of Christians are unclear about. What, you say, what's that? The Bible is clear that God is not against enjoying pleasure. A lot of Christians get confused on this. The Bible is very clear that God created a world and put his people in it, and he designed a world of pleasure, and that desire is not intrinsically wrong. That desires are not intrinsically wrong. Stoics and Buddhists, they try to extinguish the flames of desire, but God never asked a Christian to try to extinguish all flames of desire. Unlike Eastern religions like Hinduism or Buddhism that deny that the physical realm is even real, the Bible offers a very sober endorsement that this is a very real planet. God created it to be enjoyed. He created a paradise, and he designed a a world for us to, to use and enjoy. 
the physical realm within boundaries. Everything comes with boundaries, otherwise you can't enjoy it. For, but for example, God told Adam and Eve to enjoy the abundant food in the Garden of Eden. Enjoying good food is a gift from God within boundaries. God encourages the enjoyment of sexuality and sexual pleasure in marriage between a biological male. I guess I had so many things this season. And a biological female in a heterosexual covenant marriage. But within those boundaries, God has said, enjoy. He created it. It wasn't something the devil thought up. God thought it up. Or likewise, God made material possessions to enjoy within boundaries. And so what the 10th commandment is saying, and young people, I especially appeal to you to hear this, what the 10th commandment is saying, it's one thing to enjoy a tangible physical item. It's another thing to be obsessed with it. That's the, that's the distinction. Possessed by it. See, let me, let me give you a different definition of coveting. Coveting is moving from, oh, I like that, to I got to have that. And we've all done it. We've all done it. Some of you are doing it right now. You're in planning for something that you just, you're convinced you got to have. And what the 10th commandment was warning us about is the passion to possess. It overtakes us. And the 10th commandment is saying, never turn goods into gods. Because it happens so fast. It's a blunt warning against greed. That's what this is. Some of you know the name Richard Foster. He wrote a book well over 40 years ago now. Celebration of Discipline. Great book. And he had a line in there that I love about the danger of greed and coveting. Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline. Quote, We must really understand that the lust for affluence, the lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. I like Prophetic voices that just say it kindly, but say it clearly. Now listen to his next line. We crave things we neither need or enjoy. And we buy things we don't want to impress people we don't like. Close quote. (laughs) Guilty. Guilty. We've all done that, right? We've all done that. We crave things we neither need or enjoy. We buy things we don't even want to impress people we don't even like. So that's coveting. That's, that's what this is about. So let me give you a couple red flags of coveting. I can't obviously cover all of them, but here's some indications. You might be a chronic coveter, and all of us slip in and out of this. We find ourselves increasingly thinking that bigger is better. That is, that is American, if there's anything. We often compare the size of our homes to others and are chronically dissatisfied. Some Christians are always driving around looking at other homes all the time because they're just chronically dissatisfied with what God's given them. We look for God's affirmation of a, of a job offer and the very first thing we look at is salary and perks. It's not that that's wrong. It's the order or if that's the determining factor up front. We feel an increasing need to buy nicer cars, nicer clothes, nicer furniture. We feel an excessive need for more toys or more trips or more experiences. And here's a big red flag that you might be a chronic coveter. We slowly stop tithing. 
We stop giving 10% of what God's given us, a biblical command, to give back to his people and his church. And then even to go beyond tithing. Tithing is presented as a floor, by the way, not a, not a ceiling. It's, it's, we're supposed to be tithing to our local church. But then we're supposed to be generous and open-handed with those in need. And those that God has put in our sphere. It could be family, could be friends, could be people we don't even know. But that is some, those are some of the red flags of, of coveting. All right, let's look at the why of the commandment this morning. We can spend a whole sermon on the dangers of coveting. And so I had to cherry pick, and I'm only going to pick two of the dangers of coveting. That's, I'm, I'm not comprehensive here on this second point. But these are two very real dangers of coveting. Number one, and for number one, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I, I'm going to mention this first because I know some of you don't know where Ecclesiastes is. We did a series in it a couple years ago. You might have to check out your index and just look. But find Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's toward the end of your Old Testament. Here's the first danger of, of coveting. Ready? And then this is in no chronological order. Coveting breeds constant dissatisfaction in our life. That's, that's the, the great bummer of it. Coveting breeds incessant dissatisfaction with everything I have all the time. I summon to the witness chair King Solomon. Okay, If one human being had the potential to be satisfied with possessions, it was Solomon. Solomon had the personal wealth easily of someone like Elon Musk, king of Saudi Arabia, and let's throw in Mark Zuckerberg for good cheer. I checked Zuckerberg's net worth this morning just to make $70 billion. $70 billion. Throw him in with Elon Musk. Throw him in with the king of Saudi Arabia. Solomon, as far as we know, may have been one of the richest men to ever live. And his income kept coming in. And it's not wrong, the Bible says, to be wealthy, depending on how we became wealthy. The Bible advocates, interestingly, neither, neither riches or poverty. Neither are exalted in the Bible. It depends on why we are rich. But the Bible doesn't say, oh, this is good, or, or it doesn't say excel for, you know, go for poverty. But I summon a Z, uh, 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 Solomon to the chair here in Ecclesiastes for one reason. Because here we have perhaps the richest man who's ever lived. And here we have his personal diary where he tried a series of experiments. I called, when I did the series a year or so ago, he called these pleasure safaris. He went on all these crazy pleasure safaris trying to, trying to get everything he could, every pleasure. And then he would be very honest about, ah, disappointing. And especially when it comes to money, coveting, I want to look at chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is essential testimony. So here it is. From perhaps the wealthiest man who ever lived and spared no expense to quote John Hammond from Jurassic Park, spared no expense to pursue anything he absolutely wanted. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasures of kings and provinces. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, and I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. This was the reward for all my toil, and yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done 
And what I had toiled to achieve, everything was hevel. Remember the word hevel if you were here? Vanity, emptiness. Everything was emptiness, a chasing after the wind, even though he had all the money and had all the resources and could do everything. He was a chronic coveter, and he said it. he had a brick wall with all of it, and it didn't do anything for him. I heard Chuck Colson years ago who said, the only difference between the rich and the poor is that those who are poor still have the illusion that money will bring them pleasure. He said, those who are wealthy, no, that's a lie. That's a lie. Look at chapter 5, verse 10, very quickly. Here's kind of his summary. This sounds a lot like John D. Rockefeller. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. Again, Solomon's personal journal, personal diary, his candid observations about his own life. Ecclesiastes 5, 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is hevel. It's meaningless. Several years ago in the newspaper USA Today, I saw an interview with Ted Turner. Some of you know the name. Ted Turner, guy that founded CNN, Media Empire, wealthy beyond wealthy. And he was asked about his huge financial empire worth, you know, that point, I don't know how many billions, but he, he was asked a very specific question. He was asked how he, uh, you know, he, how he saw the whole thing, and he confessed that even though he had this huge financial empire, here's what he said, he felt trapped financially. Now think about that. I mean, think about that. And then he said, I want to be bigger. That's why I said this is reminiscent of, you know, you read Solomon or you read that kind of quote. It's the same thing John Rockefeller said. There's, it's never enough. Coveting breeds chronic... Dis- you want to be miserable? You want to be incessantly dissatisfied? Start coveting all the time. Start pursuing. Start online shopping all the time. And just start cruising around looking at homes all the time. You will become incredibly dissatisfied. Let me give you one other danger of coveting. And again, we could go through 10 more, but I don't, I don't have time. But this one's very real. Coveting erodes moral common sense. In a person's relentless pursuit to possess, vital priorities are laid aside. The marriage, discipling children, Sabbath, tithing, all sorts of stuff happen and they're all bad. Why? Because... The pursuit of money becomes the number one goal. And the sad thing is this can go on for years and great damage can be done when we begin to neglect important convictions in our life and the persistent pursuit to obtain more and more. And as coveting, if it continues and greed grows, what happens is we we continue to make moral compromises and spiritual compromises on more important priorities and great damage can be done to us personally our family, our marriage, our relationships, our lives, our lineage. So those are just two of the dangers. Coveting breeds chronic dissatisfaction. Ecclesiastes, worth spending time on, and it erodes moral common sense. And there's abundant testimony to people who've gone to prison because in the pursuit of everything, they completely lost their moral compass. Okay, lastly, how how can we obey this command? And again, 
we could deal with 10 things here, and I don't, we don't have time, so I just chose three, how to obey this commandment. And let me, again, there's great blessing and reward in obeying God's commands. So, number one, strive for simplicity of lifestyle. Notice I didn't say strive for austerity. I didn't say strive for poverty. That's not a biblical calling. In the Bible, it's neither riches nor poverty. Neither are exalted as noble. But simplicity is. You can practice simplicity if you have a net worth of $100 million or a net worth of a few thousand dollars. You can strive for simplicity like Jesus did. This is, this is not forced poverty. This is not some kind of fake poverty. It's a conscious decision, ladies and gentlemen, young people, it's a conscious decision to deaccumulate possessions as much as I accumulate. It's a calculated decision that I, need, I don't need more toys and more stuff. Sure, there's strategic things we need here and there, but less clothes, less stuff, less things. And it's the opposite of what so many Christian couples do. This last week, I dipped into one of my favorite books of all time. And I say that truly. I mean, I, people say, you recommend lots of books. I can't keep up with them. I know, I, re- I read a lot. This is truly one of my all-time favorites. And it is a classic. If you've never read this, you need to. Jeremiah Burroughs actually died in his 40s. He got thrown off a horse. And he was... But he was a very popular pastor in London. Very popular. He wasn't just an academician. He was a well-trained, theologically educated pastor, but he was a very popular preacher in London in the 1600s. And he preached a series of sermons. It became a book, the title, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It is a gem, pun intended. <laughs> it's a gem of a book. And so this week, because this series is on, I mean, today's message is on contentment and coveting, I just thought, you know, I'm going to dip back in. Becky and I have read this and probably reread it. It's all marked up. And I was flipping through it just going, oh, this is such a good book. And then I came across this line, page 86 and 87, and it just fit perfectly for today. Christ teaches the lesson of self-denial, and it's a hard lesson. This is the first lesson Christ teaches anyone, self-denial, which brings contentment and softens a person's heart. So, number one, strive for simplicity in your lifestyle, like Jesus did. Less is more. Secondly, tithe faithfully. Some of us quit tithing. And then we wonder, why is God's blessing left our home? Tithing is the Bible's teaching that it's just a Hebrew word that means ten. It's the Bible's teaching throughout that a Christian... A believer is to give 10% of what God gives them. And it starts with their local church. But it's, again, it's a floor, not a ceiling. We're also supposed to be giving above and beyond our tithe, sacrificially to others in need, friends, family, whoever. But the Bible's clear that God calls his people as a matter of obedience to be tithing. And he promises great blessing. So I read the verse a few weeks ago. Read a couple verses again today, just in case you weren't here or forgot. Or just like me, I just need to be reminded. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. This is Malachi 3. 8 through 10. Test me, and this says the Lord Almighty, and see if I don't throw open the floodgates of heaven. I can't hear that verse enough, quite honestly. And pour out so much blessing out there, you won't have enough room to store it. And you say, well, what kind of blessings does that mean? That sounds like health and wealth theology. 
Finances are included in God's blessing, but that's, that's not just a promise, give and God will, you know, a hundredfold. He may bless financially, but blessing in the Bible is a broader category than just finances. It's God's blessing on our marriage, God's blessing on our parenting, God's blessing on our ministry, God's blessing on our finances. It's God's blessing in so many realms. And God says, what do you want written over your house? Blessing or curse? Tithe faithfully, start there. You'll have the word blessing written over your house. So that's the second one. Strive for simplicity. Make sure you're faithfully tithing and obeying God. And here's the third one. Cultivate friendships with people who model simplicity. I, I think this one's huge. Because the Bible's very clear that we become like those we spend time with. The Bible's very clear about that. That can be relatives, that can be friends, that can be colleagues at work, people you hang around at school, but the people you allow the most in that inner ring are the ones who will influence you the most. And cultivate time with people who model simplicity. One of the strongest protections against continually wanting more is to spend more time with people who want less. That's one of the biggest ways. And it may mean I need to take an off-ramp with certain relationships and I may need to start cultivating some new ones. All right, our summons this morning. And then we'll land the plane here. Here's our summons. Seek the right kind of treasure to find eternal life. Some of you may not have heard the gospel before. Some of you may have come in today and, and, and you're like, how do I, how do I make sure I'm, I know God and, and I'm forgiven and I'm, I'm on my way to heaven? Well, here's the good news. It's very clear in the Bible. Jesus came along. Jesus never spoke against desire. He never advocated poverty. He actually uh, talks about, the, he actually uh, endorses private property. In that sense, he didn't come along and endorse capitalism, but he never spoke against poverty and, and, and advocated socialism. But what he did issue warnings against, almost more than any other topic, was money and the love of money and being trapped and suffocated by it and thinking that money will provide lasting some kind of satisfaction in this life and some kind of eternal protection in the next life. That's the great danger of, of the money monster. And so Jesus warns all of us, hear this, Oh, church, hear this, Jay, hear this, church. Jesus warns us regularly, love of money will keep many out of the kingdom of God. Even many religious church-going people. In Matthew 6, he said, instead, store up treasure in heaven, which leads to the good news of the gospel. You say, well, how do you store up treasure in heaven? That's simple. It's very clear according to the Bible. Bible, and this is where great news for lawbreakers. <laughs> Repent. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And once you're saved, you get a new status. You say, what is that new status? You're risen with Christ. You're one with Christ. You're in union with Christ. And his Holy Spirit is now inside you giving you new desires, new abilities, a peace you've never known before. And so I close with a verse I've read a couple times in this series. I think this verse is the perfect verse to end our series on the Ten Commandments. It's the gospel promise about obedience. John chapter 14, verse 21. Jesus says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me, I love this, will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and show myself to them. That is gospel preaching. And notice he hooked it to commands. May God give us the ability to choose the wise path. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the law. 
we want to cry out with King David, oh, how we love your law. Not to save us, but to show us how to live and thrive and get out of the bondage and the crazy ruts we get into. Set us free from ourselves. And open the eyes of those today, Father, who don't know Christ as Lord. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen.